Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. I'm exceptionally thankful to be asked to come and open the Word of God to you this morning, and that is exactly what it is. It is God's Word. And as I come as God's servant, I trust that we listen to it as the very words of God, as he's indicated they are. This is, I think, my third or fourth occasion of having opportunity to come and speak to you, and I am just exceptionally thankful. It's always a blessing to be asked somewhere once, another blessing to be asked again. And uh, so I'm, I'm grateful this morning to be able to open the word to you in First Peter chapter 3, a book that I absolutely love and I think is perfect for the situation in which we presently find ourselves and the world in which we live. Would you join me as we go to our Lord in prayer, as we pray before we engage his word? Father, we call you Father because you've asked us to, because indeed you have given to us a new birth, and in this new birth you've given to us a Holy Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, who desires that we hear your word and be changed by it. And this morning I pray to you, I ask of you, that your word would be alive and that it would be rich to the transformation of lives this morning. Help us to think biblically because our minds are saturated with biblical truth. Oh, Father, we need you this morning. I need you this morning as I proclaim the word and your people need you as they hear the word that it would not return void but accomplish that which you sent it forth. Would you send it forth to the conversion of souls this morning? Would you likewise send it forth to the comfort of those, your people, this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. What makes you anxious? Consider the last few weeks, perhaps months, and think about those things that you've thought through over the day, that you haven't been able to stop thinking about. Perhaps the things that have actually kept you even from sleeping. What are those things? What consumes your thoughts? What makes you anxious? We know as believers that Jesus calls us not to be anxious, but to give our cares to him. But we are human creatures, and we tend to be anxious about something. And if I'm honest with you, one thing that I find within my own heart pondering every once in a while is the future of my daughters. I have uh, three daughters, nine, seven, and five. And my anxious thoughts are not, how am I going to afford all of their weddings or uh, all of their college and these sorts of things, though I suppose I should think about that. Uh, My anxious thoughts are sometimes about the fact that they're growing up in a world that seems to be foreign to the world I grew up in. And I can begin to sometimes worry, what is the world going to be like for them? And sometimes my thoughts cross to myself. And I think even of my own present situation, and I think of the world that we're presently in. A world where Christian values, to simply state what Christians have believed for centuries and generations, is sometimes called hate speech simply say the things that believers have held to for years and generations. 
And I think of a world that seems, at least in the Western world, in, in uh, the United States of America and elsewhere as well, a situation in which suffering seems to be increasing simply for being a Christian. And sometimes my thoughts can become anxious when I consider that. And this morning, what I'd like us to consider is, how should we think about living in a culture where being a Christian, simply holding to Christian values, gets you placed upon the wrong side of the ledger? Puts you in the category of those who are hateful or those who are on the outside. How do we deal with suffering as a Christian? And I'm using that word literally here, and I don't, and I don't mean in the sense of physical suffering. Certainly throughout, throughout the world and throughout the history of the church, there have been much who have suffered physically and in blood over what they've believed. But there have been many others who have suffered in other ways. They've suffered fiscally, they've suffered socially, they've been mocked, they've been mistreated simply because they hold to Christian values. Remember the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says, you've not yet resisted unto blood. So the people there are not suffering in the way that they're being killed. But are they suffering? They are. They're losing much because of their Christianity. And it appears in, through many ways that that in some ways, that seems to be the direction that our nation is heading. So what do we do? How do we live? What do we think about this as believers? We are benefited in that. That question is not a solitary question that's out there, and we really don't know how to answer it. There's actually a book in the New Testament written to people who are suffering socially. The book of 1 Peter is written to people who, they've not been killed for their faith, but they have been verbally, verbally mistreated. In fact, if you look here in chapter 4, which is not far from where I've had us turn, look with me in verse number 3. Peter is talking about these believers who've converted to Christianity, and after they converted to Christianity, their life changed. Because guess what happens to people who convert to Christianity? Their life changes. And then what happens to such people? Notice what he says in verse 3 of chapter 4. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. That is, unbelievers, those who don't know God. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in, the same, in their reckless, wild living. Okay, so here, here's what he's saying about these believers. He's saying, look, you used to be among them. This is how you used to live. And that little paragraph I read there about the sins that they're involved with, if we went to Ann Arbor and said, hey, we're going to have something that involves these things, people would say, okay, where is it? I, I want to be there, right? This seems to be a thing that, that many in our culture would enjoy these sorts of activities. But he says, this isn't who you are. You've been changed. The time that is past suffices, is sufficient to do the things you used to be involved with. And now you're not. And here's what happens to, to those who used to know you when you were like that. They're surprised. 
They say, well, hey, we're all going to do this thing. And you say, well, I can't. I, I, I can't do that. I won't do that. And they're surprised. Why, why won't you do that? And we might think, okay, so they'll be surprised, and then they'll say, oh, okay, so you're just a little bit different. But that's not how the text goes on. Notice how it concludes. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Here it's talking about just verbal abuse. They speak evil of you, is another way of saying this. And we might think, boy, that seems irrational, doesn't it? Just because I don't do... But if we understand this point about sin, we'll understand this point about this passage. And it's this, that we enjoy it when everybody's doing the same thing we're doing, particularly if it's a sinful thing. Because if everyone's doing it, then how do we feel about us doing it? Hey, everybody's doing it. That's just what you do. And when we get a society that's heading straight long towards some of these things, and there are some who stand up and say, no, we cannot, guess what? They're like the mole that sticks its head up, and we've got to push it down. We've got to get rid of the person who's reminding us of the moral values that we've now rejected. We don't want that. And so we don't want the person who's going to say those things. And I think this is precisely where we find ourselves in our current culture. When a Christian stands up and says, no, I won't do that, we think, well, they, they should just leave us alone. But they can't because to the degree that we continue to say that people should not is the degree to which they are reminded that, in fact, people should not. And they do not want to be reminded of this. So we cannot simply step aside and everything will be okay. There is going to be some sort of blowback. And Peter here is writing to a congregation of people who are living in a society that broadly rejects their values. And so to the degree that the Christians are standing for their values is the degree to which even their righteous behavior is being spoken of as evil. So, what do we do? How do we live in such a way? Do we give in to despair? What should we do? Well, Peter is going to address that question here in 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 17 particularly, but I want to actually build a little bit of the context here to answer that question. How do believers live in a culture that ultimately rejects their values and sometimes induces suffering because of their values? How do we live in that way? Well, the first thing that Peter tells us is this. We should give the world no good reason to persecute us. We should give the world no good reason to persecute us. Notice that in verse chapter, verse, or chapter number 3, verse 17, it says this, It is better, if it be God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He says it a couple of other times in the book of 1 Peter, but what he's addressing is the fact that there are times where we suffer, and the reason we suffer is because we've been foolish. We've done evil. Is it possible that there are some 
who are claiming the title of suffering for Christ, and yet what they suffer for is their own foolishness? Have we not seen that and experienced that? I saw just uh, yesterday, actually, as I was thinking about this passage, I, I was on Facebook and I saw a meme uh, that had these words on it. Uh, local Christian, not sure whether he's being persecuted because he's a Christian or because he's a monumental jerk. <laughs> and the point there being that we ought to make sure and Peter mentions it a couple of times, that if indeed we suffer, we suffer because of righteousness and not because we have done things that bring about that suffering. There's a second point that Peter mentions. We should give the world many reasons not to persecute us. All right, so, so the first one was a recognition that we should give the world no good reason to persecute us. The second is that we should give the world many reasons not to persecute us. Look with me rather quickly here in chapter 2. Look at verses 11 and 12. Peter says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, that is, as people who've been now, now born of God, who are different from the world that you live in, what should you do? Abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul, and live such good lives among the pagans or the unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here's what Peter's saying. You're living in a culture that's different than you. They don't hold your values. And as you live among them, live righteously. So that even though they say, hey, there's Tim. That guy, that guy's a total loser. And they heap verbal abuse on you. They look at your life. And they say, even though I'm heaping abuse on him, he really is a good man, and I can't help but see it. And the text says that very well it may be that those who heap such abuse on you will glorify God on the day he visits us. You know what that means? It's that when the Lord Jesus returns, they give glory to him because they have been converted because of seeing your lifestyle of grace. Peter then indicates various ways in which we can, in a society in which rejects our values, nevertheless live in such a way that others can see our lives and say, those people are good people. Uh, he works through a number of these here. Verse number 13 of chapter 2, he says, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human authority. The point here is that as believers, we ought to be the type of people who obey our government. We ought to, be, above all, obey government to the degree that the government doesn't reject Christ. I mean, in, in the sense that if the government asks us to do something against Christ, obviously we can't obey the government. But if it doesn't, then we ought to be the type of people who obey our government. That's Peter's point. We ought to be the type of neighbors who obey the law. He then jumps down. and talks about, in verse 18, slaves in reverent fears, Submit yourselves to your masters. Of course, we don't live in a slavery context today. Uh, praise the Lord for that. Most commentators, though, recognize that the 
type of slavery here that's being referenced is, is more akin in the present day to a workplace type of environment. And so many have made that analogy. And I'll simply say, and I don't have time to develop this because we're looking at 3.13 to 17, but I think there is analogy here to our engagement in the marketplace. And his point in that passage is this, that we ought to be the type of workers that everybody says, he's a hard worker. We ought not to be the type of people who lay back, and then when the boss enters, all of a sudden we're extremely busy. But we're the type of people who, whether people are looking at us or not, we are engaged in the business that we're being paid for. We're not stealing from our employers. Everyone recognizes at the workplace that you do good. And Peter here is saying, be that type of person. He then notes in chapter 3, 1 to 7, the relationship in the home between the husbands and wives. And he says that wives ought to concern themselves, not with external standards of beauty, but with forming internal character such that all who see them would recognize that they are beautiful in light of their character. He tells men that they ought to be such in a society that they recognize a respect for their wife. Point here being that people in the, in, in the culture would recognize that in a marriage relationship, these believers have got a good marriage. And then finally here he says in 3, 8 to 12, this is how all of us should be. He says this, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because of this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Oh, whoever would love life and see good days, he must keep his tongue from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If I could summarize verses 8 to 12, it really says this. Be an incredible neighbor. Love people. And even if people treat you poorly, what should you do? Treat them well in response. And let me say, if you live this way, you are living counterculturally. People will think you're behavior odd. They won't understand you. You will be weird. And in fact, I think one of the main points of 1 Peter is to embrace weirdness. Be different than the world that surrounds you. Reading that, 3, 8 to 12, would you want a, a neighbor who's like this? They're sympathetic, loving one another, being compassionate and humble, not repaying evil for evil, insult for insult. We would absolutely love neighbors like this. And here's what Peter has done up to this point. He said, look, give the world no reason to persecute you. And then second, he says, give the world lots of reasons not to persecute you. Be a righteous person. Be holy in everything you do. But then Peter says this, third, expect to suffer. And we say, now wait a second. 
We just said that we are living such a way that we give them no reason to persecute us. And in fact, we give them lots of reasons not to persecute us. Why should I then expect to suffer? In fact, notice with me in chapter 3, verse 13. Peter asks this rhetorical question. Now, who is going to harm you if you are eager, if you are zealous, if you are passionate to do good? Who's going to harm you? And the, uh, the, the answer that we would initially and, and seemingly obviously say is, well, obviously nobody. I mean, who would come against somebody who's just passionate about seeking to do good? But notice what Peter says down in verse 17 again. He says, it is better if it be God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Oh, friends, you know, Paul tells us all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer some form of persecution. And as we look at Jesus' words, we rem- remember we read them in Matthew chapter 5, these great beatitudes, and it tells us these hum- this humble way of living, and then it concludes this way, that blessed are you when men revile you, and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. You see, Jesus anticipated that they would reject us. And how would he know? First Peter chapter 2, verse 20 tells us this, that we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Look, Jesus was the most righteous man who ever lived. He did completely right. And yet, how was he treated? And if we, being little Christs, Christians who follow in his path, do the same thing, should we be surprised if we receive the same treatment? And Jesus says, don't be surprised. Peter here is saying, now, who's going to harm you? But then he says this in verse 14, but even if you should suffer, By the way, I think it is important to recognize in verse 17, he says, but if you suffer for doing good and if it is God's will that you do so, you cannot suffer for righteousness unless it be God's will. He is sovereign over this. But indeed, he has told us that he allows his saints to go through suffering. We should expect to suffer. And, you know, I think we've been kind of... Uh, numbed to this experience because we've lived for so long in the United States of America during a time when many of the biblical values we hold uh, certainly weren't, you know, I, I don't think this uh, United States of America is a Christian nation, but certainly many of the principles that uh, this nation was built upon were Christian principles. And so for a long time, we've not experienced much of this. But if we look in the pages of Scripture, what we find is the anticipation that this would be the norm. I've just been reading uh, this semester at uh, the seminary. I'm reading a, uh, or I'm teaching a class called "The Great Books of the of the Christian Church." And one of the themes I keep seeing in these great books is I'm reading through some books all the way from 325 A.D., so a long, long time ago, all the way up to about the modern period, is this emphasis on suffering that this was, has just been the norm of God's people, despite the fact 
that we give the world no good reason to persecute us, despite the fact that we live in such a way that we give the world many good reasons not to persecute us, we should prepare for suffering. And how should we think about suffering? And here's where Peter really addresses us in this passage. He says, expect suffering, but do not fear suffering. Expect suffering, but do not fear suffering. Why should we not fear suffering? Well, I want us to read verse 13 again, because I think there's more to it than we initially read. Peter says this, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do what's good? We can read that verse in two different ways. We can read that as a rhetorical question that says, now if you pursue what's right and what's good, who's going to harm you? But I think there's another way of reading, and I think this is uh, likely what Peter is getting at here, um, ultimately. He's saying, who can really harm you? if you are passionate for doing good. And if we read it this way, then I think it's parallel to Jesus' statement when he tells his disciples, do not fear those who can harm your body, but fear him who can harm the body and the soul. That is, fear God. And I think Peter's getting at that here. He's saying, he's asking us the question, who can ultimately harm the one who's eager for doing good? Nevertheless, even though they cannot ultimately harm the believer, notice that they can cause suffering. In fact, notice what he says here, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And then notice the next command. Do not fear their threats. Do not fear their threats. What exactly does this mean to do not fear their threats? If you were actually translating, uh, you would actually see that the literal rendering of this would be, do not fear the fear of them. Do not fear the fear of them. What exactly does that mean? And I think here that it's best to understand this in this way. It's not necessarily do not fear them, though that's a part of it. The major idea here is do not fear what they fear. Do not fear what they fear. You see here, Peter is saying that there are individuals within our broader culture, within his broader culture, persecuting these saints. And he says, and when you endure such persecution, when you endure such suffering, do not fear what they fear. Now, I, I want us to recognize that, in fact, Peter is getting this passage from somewhere else. If we were to turn back to Isaiah chapter 8, you would see that he's getting this from Isaiah 8, verses 12 to 14. And in that context, Isaiah is told not to fear the conspiracy that's coming against him. And the passage is talking about the Assyrians who are coming in great numbers to come and to, to destroy Israel. And here's what God says to Isaiah. God says to Isaiah, do not fear what every other person out there is presently fearing. Don't do it. 
Instead, there's something else to fear. We'll, we'll pick that up here in just a moment, but he tells Isaiah not to fear. He then says this next thing, do not fear their threats, Peter says, and do not be frightened. Do not be frightened. This second word, frightened, really speaks about an internal troubling of the heart. It's the same word that is used when Jesus was walking on the water. Do you remember the disciples in the boat? And they see one walking on the water to them. And the text tells us that they thought it was a spirit coming at them. And it says, and their hearts were troubled. It's the same word when Zechariah, who is going in to light the incense, he's the only one in the temple. Literally the only one in the temple. And he goes to light the incense, and there's someone standing there. You ever been that way? <laughs> you, you go down late at night to get a snack or something from the fridge, and then somebody's standing there, and that, the fright that that, ex, that, that, that that causes in your heart. And Peter's saying, er, in, in, uh, in this context here, the idea is that Zechari- Zechariah sees someone standing there, and it says that his heart was troubled. It was anxious within him. It's also the word, by the way, used when Jesus was thinking about G- Judas' betrayal. And his heart was in anguish and in some anxiety, it seems, over all that was about to take place. And he he rested that, that with his father. We recognize that. But this word talks about an internal angst that develops within our hearts. I have to be honest with you, when I read this text in 1 Peter chapter 3, I read that first section, do not fear, and I think, okay, I can embolden myself. I can live in such a way that I don't fear. But then he throws in that second element. And don't even be frightened. Don't be anxious in heart. And I think that's the hard thing. How do we not be anxious in heart? I told you at the beginning of this sermon. And sometimes my mind can get carried away as I think of my daughters growing up in this world. Sometimes my thoughts can be carried away as I think of the direction that we're headed and the, the, the future that potentially could take place. And anxiety can begin to build in my heart. And what does Peter tell me here by means of the words of the Holy Spirit? He says, do not fear and don't be frightened. And the, the question I have in my heart may be the same one you have. How in the world am I going to do that? How can I live like that? But the beautiful thing about this passage is it doesn't just end with, hey, don't be afraid, don't even be frightened. It goes on. Notice that it actually replaces that fear and that anxiety with something else. Notice with me in verse 15. But in your hearts... Revere Christ as Lord. Revere Christ as Lord. That word for revere there actually is the word that we use for sanctification. If you are sanctified, it means you've been set apart for holiness. You've been placed somewhere else in terms of the realm of holiness. And in the same way here, what it's essentially saying is, in your hearts, make a separate place for God. And I think this separate place is a higher place. And the point here is that when we fear, 
what's going to happen when anxiety builds within our hearts about how we're going to be mistreated and what else might take place. Peter says, don't fear. Don't let the anxiety overwhelm you. Instead, here is what you ought to do. Set apart Christ as Lord. You know what that means? He's master. He's in control. Do you remember what Jesus told us when he left? I'm going to my Father, yes, but I am with you until the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. And right now, I think of the book of Revelation and all the things going on in, uh, in, in the book of Revelation on the earth and all the calamities and all that sort of thing in the book of Revelation. And then you get this scene that turns to heaven. And what is God and the Lamb doing? They are sitting on their throne, undisturbed. They're sovereign. They are Lord. And the text tells us instead of fearing, instead of being in anxiety, what we do is we remember that Christ is Lord. There is a saying, and it is an absolutely true saying. If you fear the Lord, you have nothing else to fear. If you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. It would be irrational to fear anything else because he is in control. Oh, friends, we live in an age that there's so much going on that we can be concerned about. But if we revere Christ as Lord, recognize that he is sovereign over all things, that he has a plan, then we do not have to be frightened by the things that frighten our world. Remember earlier he said, do not fear the things that they fear. Why would we not fear the things that they fear? Well, primarily because our hope is not their hope. Our world desperately wants the things of this world because if this is everything, then if I don't have something now, I will never have it. If this world is everything, then I better fight, even kill, to get what I can in this world because once it's over, it's over. But you do not have to fall into such a trap because you are not so fooled into thinking that this is it. There is a life to come. Paul tells it this way. (laughs) He says, if we are wrong about the resurrection, if men are not raised, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Why? Because we missed it. We endured suffering. We endured the castigation of the world. And we received nothing for it. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 does not doubt that the resurrection is true. He's simply saying if it were true that there is no resurrection, then we have no hope. But it is true, and we do have hope. And so we can endure whatever the world brings upon us. Because we know at the end of the day, we have won. We're on the winning team. If you knew today that your selection for the Super Bowl was going to win, you had 100% confidence. Somehow, you knew the final score. You could sit there and you could watch your team losing without a care. You could say, oh, well, that was interesting. That'll make the game even more fun when when it uh, reverses here in just a little bit because I know the end of the game. And you need not be anxious over all of the little plays that happen in the in-between. 
And in the same way, we know the end of the matter. We know where our souls will reside. We know these things. And so we need not fear like our world fears over these things. So, what will happen when we live like this? What will happen when, despite what the world tells us we should do, we live in a different way and we live righteously, we don't give them reason to persecute us, we give them lots of reasons not to persecute us, and we don't fear the things that they fear, we live in a totally different way, what's going to happen? Peter goes on to tell us what's going to happen. He says this in verse 15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, all right, set apart Christ as Lord. And when you do that, be ready to answer their questions. Because they're going to sit back and they're going to say, why are they doing that? Why are, they, why are they living like this? What hope do they have that I don't have? And they'll ask you questions about it. And he says, be prepared. Live righteously. Don't fear, the, don't, don't fear their accusations and don't fear what they're fearing. And instead, get prepared for an evangelistic opportunity to share with people who don't understand you why you're so weird why you're so different. And that's precisely what he says. So be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. And then he notes this, but do this with gentleness and respect while keeping a clear conscience. In other words, as you respond to individuals, do so graciously with love so that Those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ. Notice that they speak evil of your good actions, that those who speak evil of your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. How do we respond? We don't respond in like kind. To those who persecute us, we we don't respond bitterly and in anger. We respond in grace and love, ready to respond with the gospel and share with them what hope we have. And as we do so, we recognize that it very well may be our our experience and what, what we say and how we respond that leads someone to Christ. You see, the text indicates to us that the gospel is both preached with what we say and what we do. Many a great gospel presentation has been muddied by the life of the individual who gave it. Many a gospel presentation has been highlighted and magnified by the life of the one who gave it. And here Peter says, live righteously. Live in such a way that when others persecute you and say all manner of evil against you, you don't fear, you don't live in anxiety, You know, though, there's one other thing I want us to recognize about this passage that I find really fascinating. It's something I skipped, and maybe you noticed I skipped it. Way back early on, he says this, but even if you should suffer for what is right, this is in verse 14, you 
are blessed. You're blessed. And I think this is one other element that Peter's saying here. So how do we respond in these sorts of situations? We consider ourselves blessed. All right, so earlier I said that we're weird people. Yeah, this is a part of that. (laughs) Why would it be that when I am persecuted for righteousness, I would consider that such a blessing. And I think there are, there are a couple of reasons. There are three things that I think that the text hints at, two of which come from Jesus himself. When I read that text, when you suffer for doing what's right, you are blessed. Peter is clearly referring to what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. That's why I asked for that passage to be read this morning. Jesus goes through these beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are, and he walks through all of them. And then the final one is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he makes this switch. And he says, and blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And then what does Jesus say? Rejoice! And be exceptionally glad. Boy, that seems odd. Why, Jesus? Why should I rejoice and be exceptionally glad? And here's what he says. Rejoice and be exceptionally glad. First, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know what that means? That means you are in the same line as the righteous people who've come before you. The Prophets who were before us were persecuted for righteousness. Jesus who came before us was persecuted for righteousness. What should we expect from a world, from the world in which we live? We should expect that. And so this is a badge of ownership of the Holy Spirit that we are misunderstood by the world in which we live in. Jesus says the second thing, though. Your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. Do you believe in the life to come? Do you believe that this is in everything? If you do, then you can actually accept the loss of employment because of righteousness. If you, were, if, if you had to take a stand because of righteousness and you lost your job, you should rejoice you say, well, well, wait a second, but I'm out of a job. And I say, but God has promised to take care of his own, and he will reward you for your faithfulness. He will. Now, I'm not telling you that things won't be hard, and that life won't be difficult in the, in the short term, but I can guarantee you this, you will stand one day in eternity, and you will say it was worth it. Great is your reward in heaven, Jesus says. But I think Peter hints at one more thing. Yes, we can rejoice in suffering and persecution. We can endure these sorts of things with with a different mindset than than others because we have an enduring hope. Yes, it's because we are among the saints of God's people who've endured this throughout the ages. Yes, it's because there's great reward in heaven. But Peter's point is this, (laughs) that it very well may be The persecution you experience that leads to the conversion 
of the one who persecutes you. And that's Peter's point. That when we endure persecution, this opens a door for the gospel. Because it distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. And we can say, here is why we are different. I began this text, began this message, thinking through, ultimately, the anxiety that sometimes can arise in my heart over the fact that we live in a culture that seems to be shifting in priorities and shifting in ideas holding simply to Christian values and maintaining and saying that I'm a Christian can sometimes expose you to ridicule. How do we respond? How do we think of this? Do we cower in fear? And Peter's response is, oh, friends who have endured this, rejoice. It provides an opportunity. Suffering is the normal lot of God's people. And it provides opportunity for us to gain eternal joys, eternal rewards. And it provides opportunity for us to present the gospel. And so when your heart begins to be filled with anxiety, as you anticipate the future and what might take place, set apart Christ as Lord. Remember the end. We know the end of the game. And he's promised this, that whatever comes, It will be worth it. And it very well may be that your suffering, the way that you're mistreated, will lead to the very conversion of the one who persecutes you. And may the Lord be blessed in that. Father, I thank you that today you've given to us hope in the midst of what in many people's eyes might be a very difficult time. You've given to us reason to rejoice and celebrate despite uh, ominous dark clouds that some may, may expect. Father, we thank you that we know the end from the beginning. We, or or we, we know the end of all things. You've told us what will take place. Help us then. Help our hearts to rest in you. To rest in your plan, Father. You have designed it. The passage indicated that some of us may suffer. Oh, but Father, you will reward us. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.